you're listening to Derm Consult on ReachMD. And this episode is sponsored by Lilly. Here's your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Welcome to Derm Consult on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and joining me to discuss the pathophysiology of alopecia areata is Dr. Natasha Meshinkovska, who's an associate professor and vice chair for clinical research in the Dermatology School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Meshinkovska, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's just dive right in, Dr. Meshinkovska. Can you tell us about the key drivers of disease pathogenesis in alopecia areata? Alopecia areata is an autoimmune condition, and it is a complex interplay between two major factors. One is the genetics that one possesses, and the other a group of factors or triggers throughout one's life that ultimately lead to loss of immune privilege at the hair follicle. What does loss of immune privilege mean? The hair follicle actually is a very protected unit um, that has a way to shield itself from immune response. This is something that's also found at the level of the brain, the eye, and the liver. And um, how does, is this maintained? Through physical barrier from the lymphatics in the skin, through antigen sequestration, and really it almost has its own little immune guardians to keep it away from the immune system. But ones that interfere on gamma um, activities in play from triggers in life that we don't know, we think that that collapse of immune privilege is gone. And that initiates the attack on the hair follicle and leads to loss of hair. So zeroing in on that role of immune privilege, what else do we need to know about the mechanisms behind it? So the thing has been that, you know, uh, for a very long time, we've made a significant advances in um, understanding the genetics, particularly through the work from University, Columbia University, Dr. Angela Cristiano, and um, these GWAS studies to understand what are the other autoimmune conditions that one possesses to kind of zero in on what are the genetics. And interesting to these genome-wide studies, we found different regions that were at play. So it wasn't just that the T cell function regulators can be affected, also natural killer cells can be affected, certain molecules at the level of hair follicle, even melanin and filagrin, and even autophagy things. So the genetics has been dissected little by little, but it was really what are the other things? What are the triggers that we've had the privilege of learning more um, particularly in the last couple of years. And what else can you tell us about the mechanisms that lead to a collapse of that immune privilege? So upon alopecia areata initiation from um, whatever that trigger may be, there is stimulated cytotoxic T cell that um, a pathway that eventually leads to hypersecretion of interferon gamma that induces expression of MHC class one cells and level of hair follicle. And then there's this immunologic recognition of these autoantigens and that leads to um, loss of the hair. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Derm Consult on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk. I'm speaking with Dr. Natasha Meshinkovska about the pathophysiology of alopecia areata. So now that we have a better understanding of the underlying pathophysiology, I'd like us to switch gears and focus on how that impacts what we see in practice. Dr. Mashinkovska, what do we need to know about the clinical presentation of alopecia areata? So patients with alopecia areata tend to be typically young. It's a condition that can start 
early in childhood, as early as age two, but honestly, their patients, they walk in with their first episode at age 70. The average age of a person is in the early 30s. So what does that mean? That means that these patients are relatively healthy, but one thing is to understand just the toll that the condition has on their life. And that is they can start with a couple of patches of hair loss on the scalp, on the body, in the beard area, eyelashes, eyebrows. Um, But the thing is that the condition can be pretty quick or it can happen little by little, but it's really that loss of control and the unpredictability of the condition that takes its toll on a person. The hair loss can start with a couple of spots and some people that's where they stay, but, um, and that can be honestly in about 20 to 30% of patients. So about 20% of patients may only have one episode and that's it. However, um, another 20% will progress to have a little bit of a longer course and it will have more than one patch or more than two patches where they will need a little bit of treatments. And then out of the the rest of them, people kind of divide in several groups. Some will wax and wane, meaning they'll get a patch here, they'll be fine for a couple of years, then they may get it again. And um, we think less than 12% ultimately will progress to what we now refer to alopecia totalis and universalis, meaning they lose complete scalp hair, they lose eyebrows, eyelashes, and body hair. And when it comes to prognosis, how can that vary from patient to patient? There are several factors that can predict maybe um, severity of disease that we know will, um, that, you know, we have to maybe be a little bit more concerned and more vigilant. What are those early onset of conditions? So the earlier you get it, the more severe it tends to be, maybe because you just have many more years to kind of wax and wane. The other thing is if there's a family history, patients tend to have more of a severe condition. If um, there are severe allergies and um, maybe some other autoimmune diseases, such as thyroid has been a factor that predicts more of a severe disease. Now, we've certainly covered a lot of ground today. So before we close, Dr. Mashinkovska, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? The importance of the JAK-STAT kinase pathway is something that has actually allowed us to now have the first and only approved medications out there on the market. And that's the family of JAK inhibitors, which are becoming more important in treating particularly chronic skin conditions and then autoimmune arthritis. And with these JAK inhibitors, which are pills, So unlike some of the biologics that we've had that work very well, um, this gives us a little bit of an improvement because it's it's a pill. So people don't have to inject themselves. And what these medications do is they block this activation of these pro-inflammatory pathways and as such have been able to um, reverse the hair loss, even in patients that have had complete hair loss and for many, many years, um, even patients that had disease for 20 years or episodes that last as long as eight or nine years. So it's been a very exciting time in the field of alopecia areata because we're le- as we're learning more about the pathogenesis, we are able to offer more of targeted treatments. Well, with those final thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Natasha Mashinkovska, for joining me to help us better understand the pathophysiology of alopecia areata. Dr. Mashinkovska, it was great having you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Derm Consult was sponsored by Lilly. To access other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com slash dermconsult, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.